morning, everyone. If you have your Bibles open to the book of John, chapter 12. John, chapter 12. And while you're turning there, let me just catch you up to speed a little bit. So last week, we finished John, chapter 11. We took a couple of weeks to investigate that chapter. And in that chapter, we saw Jesus do something miraculous. He's done a lot of things up to this point, but all kind of start to pale in comparison to him raising Lazarus from the dead. And we learned that Caiaphas, the high priest, came into this Sanhedrin session, this council, this high council, and he basically tells everyone, listen, you've got to kill him in order to remain a nation. If you want to keep your authority, if you want to keep your following, if you want to keep things the way they were, you've got to kill him. For it's better that one man die than a whole nation be taken away. And so the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and all those who were there at that Sanhedrin session, historically speaking, probably 70 or so, they were all in hearty agreement and said, that's what, ha- that's what has to happen. Now remember, Caiaphas, his quest was not a quest for truth, but for survival, as one pastor has said. He was not after truth, he was not after these things, but he wanted to survive. He wanted to keep his position. He wanted things to be the, the way that they were. And so that's where we left off. And at that point, they were actively seeking to kill Jesus for, those, for that purpose. And so while this is happening, we have this other scene that's going on, and that is the scene where Jesus is in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. Now at the house of Simon the leper, you have Lazarus, you have Mary and Martha and the disciples. So there's this dinner party that's happening in honor of Jesus. Now, before we get into that text, I want to explain something to you, and this is important for you to understand because this is a way that we approach Scripture. When you take the Gospels, you have to remember that these are all eyewitness accounts. And where Matthew has witnessed these things, Matthew gives his account of what he has seen firsthand. And Mark does the same thing, Luke does the same thing, and then John does the same thing. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the Synoptic Gospels because they are very similar compared to John. John's gospel is very different. John's gospel is, is very, very Christological. It's, a, it's an apologetic on the deity of Christ. So it reads differently. Its content is different. But there's still a lot of similarities because they both generally walk through the same story, the life and the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. But what's important to understand is, again, that they all three approach any kind of scene or scenario from a different perspective and so when they recall or when they recount what they had seen the stories are a little bit different so let me give you an example when we look at John chapter 12 and you have this dinner party comprised of these people that I've already mentioned you have that same story being told in three of the four gospels specifically Matthew Mark and John Now, when Matthew tells this story, it's a little bit different in the fact that he tells us that the people are at Simon the leper's house, and the other Gospels don't tell us that. Matthew's Gospel also tells us that the the perfume, which we'll look at in a little bit, the perfume that Mary had was in an alabaster bottle. Now, the other Gospels don't tell us that. And so also in Matthew's gospel, they tell us that the disciples were present. If you'll, you'll notice when we get to John's gospel in just a moment, that John draws specific attention to Judas, not to the other disciples. There's no mention of the other disciples. 
But in the other Gospels, they mention the disciples. So there's a difference there. And then again, Matthew's Gospel tells us that Mary poured the perfume onto Jesus' body, whereas John's Gospel tells us that Mary anointed the feet of Christ. So you see, there's some differences. Now, it doesn't bring harm to the text. It doesn't create contradictions, and it doesn't create problems. What you need to understand as the reader and what I need to understand as the reader is that these are different vantage points. Just like if you and I arrive on the scene of some wreck or if we witnessed a wreck happen, you're going to tell the story, and you might describe the story, and everything that you describe is absolutely true to what happened. And then I describe the story, and everything in the story is exactly what happened, and it's right and true except you tell them that the vehicle was a truck and it was blue and I don't mention that it's a blue truck at all I just use the word vehicle so you see the story comes across differently but the content is still the same there's still a wreck all the major points are still there so the same is true here when Jesus is anointed by Mary, in one gospel you have it anointed, that, he anointed, that she anointed his body, and in the other gospel you have that Mary anointed the feet of Jesus. You just need to understand that when she anointed the body of Christ, that included his feet. Attention is drawn to the feet in the gospel of John for specific reason. And then the fact that she takes her hair and she wipes his feet. That has specific reason. So I just want you to know these things. I don't normally introduce a sermon this way, but it's important that you understand because I don't want to get through this over the next half hour and you be wrestling in your seat over why this compared to the other gospels reads a bit differently i don't want you to be stuck on that i don't want it to take away or diminish what's happening in john's gospel okay so if we're good with that we'll move on so let me do this for you let me set up the scene i've already said a little bit about this but let me briefly give you the scene set up the context again they're at this dinner party and why are they at this dinner party because they want to celebrate jesus they want to celebrate Jesus specifically for the fact that he raised Lazarus from the dead. These people are excited. These people are grateful to Christ. Put yourself in their shoes and just imagine what that would have been like for you to have lost a friend, to have lost a brother, to have lost a dad, to have lost you know, someone that's dear to you in your life. And then Jesus comes and he raises them from the dead for his own glory. You would be infinitely grateful. And they wanted to express their gratitude. So what do they do? They have a meal. They have a meal. And they have friends and they have disciples there. And they're celebrating Jesus. They're celebrating what Christ has done. And you'll notice the way that they show their appreciation is very different. Lazarus is said to be reclining at the table. And that's all it says. That's all it says about a man that was dead and is now alive. Very interesting, which we'll see in a moment. So Lazarus is reclining at the table. You've got Martha who's serving. And then you've got the disciples doing whatever they were doing. The scripture doesn't tell us. And then you've got Mary. Now Mary does something very different. Mary takes this bottle, this cruise, this flask, this earthen pot or jar filled with alab- uh, sorry, filled with, with, with uh, what they call spike nard or pure nard. And she breaks this over the body of Christ 
if you compile all the Gospels, breaking it over his head, pouring down his body all the way to his feet, so completely covering his body in order to anoint him and as a strong expression of her love, her appreciation for his mercy and his grace over raising Lazarus from the dead. So this is a, this is a, a, a major moment and a major expression of her love, appreciation, and devotion. And so she does this thing, but it doesn't stop there. She does this thing, the oil goes down to his feet, the, the, the perfume goes down to the, the feet of Christ, and then Mary takes her hair and she wipes Christ's feet. Well, the disciples standing by saw all of this, and they were not happy about these things. They were, uh, the, the scripture says, at least in the English Standard Version, that they were uh, uh, indignant over this. They were annoyed, they were incensed, they were not happy, they were kind of frustrated with her, and Why? The scripture tells us they were frustrated because, Mary, that probably wasn't the most frugal decision. The disciples may be saving face, I don't know. Uh, the sentiment is that they said, you know, Mary, we you could have sold that for 300 denarii and given that to the poor. And then Jesus responds to them by saying, leave her alone. Leave her alone with her that she may do this thing and have this for burial. And then he says to them, he says, the poor you're always going to have with you, but you will not always have me with you. And that's where that narrative ends. And after that, it says that the Pharisees were seeking to kill, to kill Lazarus as well as Jesus. But we're just going to stop there at that dinner party. We're just going to stop with what happens, with the transaction that takes place in that, in that immediate text. And so there's something that I want to I pull out from this text. When I think about it, when I read it, when I meditate on it, I want to do something for us. I want to pull out three snapshots, three pictures or three images from this text. And I want to let those, I want to kind of help to create these images in your brain or, or put some background behind these images so that as you think of them for the years to come, so that as you read and reread this text throughout the years, maybe the image will create these memory cycles for you that will take you back as images or pictures often do that they might take you back and you might remember some of these key components that are happening here because that's what pictures do pictures do that pictures are memories for us listen if you ask my wife i, I did this one time i said to my wife i said sarah i said if our house was on fire and, and the kids were okay, the dogs were okay, of course I was okay. What, would, what inanimate object would you go in and retrieve if you could retrieve one? And without a moment's hesitation, she said, photo book. All of my photo albums. Every one of them. Grab my pictures. I'm like, yeah, you can only choose one. Get all my books. Get all my photo albums. When I say books, I mean photo books. Same thing. Because those photos represent memories for my wife when you go into our closet in our bedroom and you look up there and you see just tons of photo albums I mean there are hundreds and hundreds of pictures in those and that doesn't even count the ones we have saved on hard drives or that are digital and so when you look at these pictures it brings back memories it, it we, we are flooded with memories and that's what images do I have an image here with me right now this is an image of my dad now, my dad and I have been backpacking together since I was five years old, and I'm 40, although I know I look 26, but I'm 40 years old. And so we've been backpacking together for a long time. And you know, yes, this is my dad looking all stoic on top of a mountain 
with his fanny pack on, Pop. Sorry, <laughs> I, I, had to, I had to do it. But you know what? I look at this picture, and I keep it on my desk. He doesn't even know this, and maybe he'll find out now if he's watching this. But I keep this on my desk, and it's just a reminder to me of the good times that I have with my dad. My dad is alive and well, and I look forward to many more years of, of being able to hike and backpack with him. But I'm flooded with years and years and years of camping trips. All the different experiences, the conversation, the laughs, the jokes, the, the scary times of almost getting bitten by snakes, the having to pack up in the middle of the night because storms, uh, because the storms are, are about to blow trees all over our tent you know, in some precarious type situations, but I'm flooded with memories, and pretty much all of them are fantastic memories. That's what images do for us. A picture provides an image that provides a memory. So it's not just an image, but a moment to re-experience the event within the picture. The aim here is that we might preserve a few images in this text that will kickstart a memory cycle for us that will be a constant reminder of the implications behind the image itself so let me share with you what my objective is before i um, before i reveal these three pictures i want us to see that no cost is too great when considering the value of of Jesus Christ. No cost is too great when we consider the value of Jesus Christ. So back to the text, picture number one. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to do this a little bit differently than I normally do. I'm going to work upside down or I'm going to work from back to front. So I'm going to start with the end of this story and work my way up closer to the beginning. So picture number one is this. I want us to capture the image of Judas and the disciples being incensed and being annoyed at Mary's actions. Now I want to say this. Matthew and Mark's gospel say the disciples were indignant. That the disciples were upset about this. But John's gospel adds a little more specificity to this when he says it was Judas who said, what a waste. It was Judas who said, why don't you take the perfume, sell it for 300 denarii, and give it to the poor. So there's a reason that John is that specific. I believe there's two things happening. I believe the disciples, based on the text, when I look at all of the Gospels, I believe all of the disciples, I believe all 12, they took issue with what Mary did. I believe the 11 out of the 12 disciples, I believe maybe their heart was in the right place. I think maybe they looked at Mary and they thought, you know, we really could have done a lot of good with that. And Jesus would honor us doing good things. Jesus would honor us taking care of the poor. Jesus would, would be honored by us in his name, uh, taking care of widows and orphans and looking after one another's you know, best interest. I mean, these things would honor Christ and we're called to do things like this. And so maybe 11 of the 12 disciples, although their heart was in the right place, they kind of missed the big picture. I think the biggest flaw in the disciples' response was their failure to see that there is no cost too great when it comes to honoring and valuing Jesus. I think that was their major issue. But I think Judas, and, and this is why John uh, brings you know, while John is more specific here, 
I think Judas, I think his sentiment meant something different. He may have echoed the same thing. It may have been this collective, oh, Mary, that wasn't very frugal. Mary, we could have done so much with that. You know, why, why pray for three hours when 30 minutes is, is good and acceptable before God? You know, why not pour out just a, a drop of the spikenard? Why not pour out just a little bit of that perfume and anoint Jesus? And we could have taken the rest and done a whole lot of good with it. But Judas was different, and we know that Judas was different because Jesus goes on in the text to say, to say these words. So verse 5 of John 12 says, Why was the ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not, speaking of Judas, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. You see, Judas' concern was not for the glory of Jesus. His concern was not for the poor. His concern was not for Christ. His concern was for himself. And I think that's why John points out Judas. That's why I think John reads a little bit differently as far as this account goes when compared to Matthew and Mark's account. Because it's highlighting the mind of the man who is darkened in his understanding. And this was Judas. So as far as this image is concerned, this is what I want to, us to take away from this picture. As one theologian said it this way, the selfish will never understand the selfless. The selfish will never understand the selfless. Notice in this image the great contrast between Mary's generosity and Judas's greediness or his agenda or his own self-interests. It's one of those moments in Scripture where the Lord is just providing such a contrast that easily and clearly represents the heart of a man who has been enlightened, who, who has been made new in Christ to his grace and the man who is lost and the man who is darkened in his understanding. This is what this is representing for us. And what a clear picture this becomes as it serves to provide a dividing line between those devoted to Jesus and those who are darkened in their understanding. Listen, the things of God are foolishness to those who are perishing. That's what Scripture promises us. So obviously Judas in his darkened mind, is going to look at what Mary's doing and think, this is such a waste. Now, granted, he didn't care anything about the poor, but he cared about himself. But he says, we could have done something else with this, all the while thinking, I could take care of me. Love for enemies, that makes no sense to the world. That makes no sense to those who are darkened in their understanding. Forgiveness, that makes no sense. That makes no sense to those who are darkened in their understanding. The pursuit of purity. That makes no sense to the outside world. It makes no sense to a dark world. Why, why you would pursue purity. Why chastity. Why these things matter so much. Why when Jesus says, let there not even be a hint of sexual immorality in your life. Why we labor as Christians so hard to 
to, to, to have blinders on our eyes to, to protect ourselves from what we may see so that we might not fall into the pitfalls of the enemy and fall into or succumb to or be seduced through the temptation and, its, and the tactics of the enemy. We labor and we fight and we strive and sometimes it's super, super hard and we keep fighting and we keep laboring and the world looks and says, what in the world? <laughs> it's so much easier just to go with it. That's how God made you. I've had non-Christian friends say these words to me. Taming our tongues? That makes no sense to a world that is darkened in its understanding. Holding my tongue. Biting my tongue. Being careful that what I say is with grace and is seasoned with salt. Being mindful of the warning passage of James which says be careful with the tongue, how it, how it sets a blaze, how it sets a fire, how it's like a small rudder that steers a large ship or vessel. Putting ourselves in harm's way for the sake of others and most importantly for the sake of the gospel. This makes no sense. <laughs> This makes no sense to a world that is darkened in their understanding. If you remember last week, I defined for you what absurdity was. Something completely unreasonable. That is completely unreasonable to a world that is perishing. And so it most certainly made no sense for Judas being darkened in his understanding to look at Mary and see that she would take this full, very costly bottle of perfume and break it dispense every drop of it to anoint Christ as an expression of her love and her gratitude. Listen, it's never a waste, no matter the cost, to pour out your devotion to Jesus. It's never a waste. Try and remember this when the world shakes its head at you for the things that it cannot understand. So that's the first picture. The second picture is this, the picture of Lazarus reclining at the table. And that's what the scripture says, just to, just, to, just to read it to you. It says this, it says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was reclining with him, with Jesus, at the table. Listen, nothing else is said <laughs> about Lazarus in this text and not much else is said about Lazarus in the entire Bible and I just find that interesting Lazarus here is the image of every man who has been raised from spiritual life I'm sorry who has been raised from spiritual death and brought into spiritual life that is one that is one implication of the image that is that is what one part of the image shows us he's reclining at the table he's enjoying the fellowship of Jesus when we are brought into right relationship we can then enjoy the fellowship we have with Christ now and especially then when all things come to pass because our relationship dynamic has been radically changed. We're made new. Co-heirs with Christ. I mean, this is crazy, crazy cool stuff. 
this image should bring to mind the feelings of gathering on the table with your friends and with your family, with those that you love dearly and the time that you share with them. As I was preparing for this, my mind went to some of my favorite moments with family. And those moments are usually of me and my family gathered around a table, not just because we like to eat, we do like to do that, but because we enjoy one another, because we love one another. And it just feels right. It's good to be in the presence of the ones that you love. We have, we have several traditions in my family and extended family, and I'll briefly share two of those. One is f- until I got married, which was in 2005. So from 1980 <laughs> to 2005, uh, for 25 years, if my math is right, for 25 years I got to enjoy going to my grandmother's house every Christmas Eve. And they still do this to this day, except I'm somewhere around eight or nine hours uh, away from my family now back in Mississippi. And so I miss this dearly, but they still do this. But for years and years and years, I was always so very excited to gather together with the family. We would go over to my grandmother's house and my grandpa's house, and we would meet with, 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 with aunts and uncles and cousins and, and all kinds of family. And it was the greatest time. And, and, and what made it so great was that you gather around two things you love a lot, food and family. And I can just remember going there. And my grandmother and grandfather would have this great spread. Man, they would have the, 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 the countertops filled with every kind of food. The same way at Thanksgiving as well. But they would have every kind of food that you can imagine. I mean, maybe it was chili. Maybe it was taco soup. Maybe it was cornbread. It was rolls. It was all these different, you know, turkey and ham and, you know, and chicken and all of these things. And you're, and you're walking around and you're just scooping. You're just dumping it on your plate. You know, this is not a sermon about gluttony. So we can just, you know, we're dumping it on the plate and we're rolling through. And then you get to this, this blessed part of the kitchen there was these two big cabinets in the middle of the cabinet was this countertop and on that countertop was just all kinds of desserts that my grandmother had placed there i mean all kinds of pies and cakes i was a i mean peanut butter balls i remember chocolate covered coconut which i love and it was oh so good it was so good and it just brings me to a great place of fellowship we do the we do something similar to that Uh, the Friday after Thanksgiving, one of my mom's most cherished traditions that we still keep today is as much as the family can, that we're spread out, we come and we, we hang out with my mom um, at, uh, and, my, and my dad and all of these people, my sisters and all these people, we, we meet together at uh, my mom and dad's house in Columbus and we decorate the Christmas tree the Friday after Thanksgiving or maybe it's the Saturday. So, uh, but we decorate and then after we decorate, we have chili and buttered crackers. Don't judge me. It's delicious, I promise. High on cholesterol, but wonderfully delicious. And, and I sit with my grandparents. I sit with aunts, with uncles, with cousins, with friends, with neighbors, with family. And it's just a great, great, great time. And I think that's what it was like for Lazarus to be reclining at the table with Jesus, And I think what that does for us is it gives us this picture. It gives us this picture of a relationship, a fellowship that we now have with Jesus, having been raised to walk in newness of life, having been rescued, bought, redeemed by his precious blood. So that's one thing I think this image reveals to us. The other is this, this 
image of Lazarus reclining at the table reveals to us that Jesus is the focus of the story. Jesus is the focus of the story. Why is nothing else said about Lazarus? I mean, this, this, is, this is really, really crazy to me. If I were there, I would have so many questions for Lazarus. I mean, where were you? <laughs> where were Abraham's bosom? Uh, you know, I mean, Jesus went to the cross and then said, I'm going to, I mean, before he went, he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. You know, wh- wh- where was he? Where did he go? I mean, that might settle the issue for some people who are wrestling through this whole thing. You know, where did he go? Did he, who did he see? Who did he talk to? What, what, what happened during, during that time? You know, did you see God the Father? What was it like to die? What was it like to die? And then, wake up and tell the tale about it. I mean, all these things that that anyone hearing this has not experienced, these would be questions that I would have, uh, not to mention countless others. What were, if you did talk to people, what were conversations like? What, 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 What did Lazarus experience? And what struck me is this, the Holy Spirit who inspired the authors, specifically here John, to write this text, the Holy Spirit did not see it as a necessity to include any of Lazarus' experience as to where he was during those four days of being in the grave. And that blows my mind until I got to thinking about it. And the only thing that makes sense, because you know the readers would want to know, the only thing that makes sense to me is this. When Jesus is in the room, it doesn't matter what anybody else's experience is. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what questions you can or have to answer because Jesus is in the room. Listen, when, when Jesus is offered up on the table with everything else, he's the only thing that matters. There would have been no point in the Holy Spirit giving us this dialogue, this, this information of where Lazarus was because Jesus was in the room. And the whole focus is on Christ. This dinner party is for Christ. It's to honor Christ. It's to worship Jesus because Jesus had the power to do this thing and they're recognizing that. You see, when there's a scale... And Jesus is on one side and everything else in the world is on the other. Jesus outweighs them all. Lazarus is not the focus of the story. Lazarus wasn't the focus of John 11. Jesus was the focus of John 11. Because when Jesus is in the room, he commands the attention. Revelation 4 and 5. In Revelation 5, the Lamb enters the room and the whole host of heaven stops what they're doing and all eyes are on Christ. Jesus is better. He's the hero of every epic. The wedding at Cana, it wasn't about the bride and groom. It was about Jesus. When John the Baptist stepped aside and the disciples began to baptize and the Pharisees came up and John's disciples came up and says, look, what's going on, man? This man is basically taken over. And John says, no, no, no. Everything I have is from heaven. I must decrease and he must increase. Why? Because it's about Jesus. Not about John. Not about the forerunner. The woman at Samaria. The woman at the well. It's about Jesus. Jesus says, I am the living water. The nobleman's son. Jesus healing the lame man. Feeding the 5,000. Jesus walking on water. Peter walking on water. It's all about Jesus. 
Jesus is always the focus of the narrative. The whole Bible, 31,240-something verses, is all pointing back to Jesus. And I know, Haven Ridge, I know you've heard this, I've heard, you've heard me say this a thousand times, but A, it bears mentioning every single day, and B, this is, for, this is for the internet world that might be hearing this that has not heard it before. You need to know that the Bible is masterfully written with Jesus as the focus from cover to cover. The woman caught in adultery by Jesus. She walks away forgiven. She walks away, as he says, you sin no more. When he had every authority to do whatever he saw fit by way of judgment to her. Jesus heals the blind man. He tells the people that he's the good shepherd. He raises Lazarus. It's all about Jesus. Listen, the Holy Spirit elected to say nothing about Lazarus because the story of a man raised from the dead is shadowed by the man who raised him. Jesus is always better than whatever else is on the table. And Mary understood this. So let's move to the third and final picture. The third picture is this, the picture of Mary anointing the feet of Christ. Listen, I don't want us to be guilty of minimizing or underemphasizing the significance of Mary's actions here, okay? What she did for Christ was a very special occurrence. So let's break this down for a minute. The scripture says that Mary... She took this cruise, she took this bottle of very expensive ointment of spike nard or pure nard, weighing in at about a pound, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So just a few sentences there to capture what Mary has done. But let me break this down, first of all, so you understand a little bit about what's going on. First of all, the reason that nard is a very expensive perfume is because, or spike nard is a very expensive perfume, or the perfume that she had was very expensive, is because, because spike nard has to be harvested at high, high elevation. And in this case, it's harvested in the Himalaya Mountains. Himalayan mountains, sorry. And you can just imagine the difficulty in traveling to those altitudes and then coming back so that these people could have this perfume. So not everybody had this. I mean, this was quite expensive. As a matter of fact, the scripture tells us this, this would have been worth about 300 denarii, which is almost a year's wage. Now, just let that sink in for a minute. Mary Maybe she was well-to-do, maybe she wasn't. The scripture doesn't make that clear. I've read some commentators that think that maybe she was well-off financially. Either way, she has this alabaster bottle of precious, very costly perfume, and she breaks it. She breaks this perfume, this perfume that's worth a year's wage, this perfume that was used to wipe down recently deceased people. And she breaks it. Most likely she broke it. And that is representative of the body of Christ that will be broken for sinners. I've heard that argued. I'm not trying to make that argument. But that's what I've heard. And maybe there's something going on there. She poured the ointment. She poured the oil on his body. On his head. Over his body. Down to his feet. 
she poured it on him, and the scripture says, preparing him for burial. It was customary to wash the deceased with perfume, specifically with nard. That was a very popular herb that was used in doing so. And then she wiped his feet with her hair. Now, I don't want us to lose sight of this. First of all, this is very costly. This meant a lot to her. There's, we, don't, we don't know how long she had this. We don't know when she purchased this, how she purchased this. It doesn't matter. The fact is, she had something that was a very, very high value to her and to anybody else. And at that moment, and at that moment, her gratitude, her love, her affections, her devotion for Jesus far surpassed anything that had any other worth or value in her life. This is so reminiscent of what Paul would say later in the scriptures in Philippians when he would say that I compare all things as rubbish, as dung compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. So this is a very similar sentiment that happens before the apostle wrote the letter to the Philippian church. And Mary breaks this bottle. She says, you know what? You are worth it. You're worth my devotion. You're worth everything. No cost is too great. Because you are, on, you are worthy. And as the ointment, as the perfume would pour down Jesus' body and down to his feet and onto the floor. I mean, this was a pound. So we're talking a lot of liquid. And Mary would take her hair and she would wipe the feet of Christ. Now we know that the feet were tremendously dirty. Walking around in sandals all day with, 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 with everything that was on the ground during that time. Animals using the restroom on the ground. I mean, this is, this is reality, folks. This is what would happen. Feet were nasty. Feet were dirty. Which is why when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, this was, this was monumental. This was monumental that the King of Kings, the Sovereign Lord of the universe, who spoke all things into creation, who commands all things with the word of his power, would stoop down would put on the uniform and become the slave, the servant, and he would wipe the feet of these disciples. Mary stoops down to the feet of Christ. And she lets down her hair. And an interesting note here from 1 Corinthians. Let me make sure I'm right in that. Yeah, 1 Corinthians eleven fifteen, which says a woman's hair is her what? Her glory. And I can't help but see that Mary letting down her hair, which was not the thing that women did. When she, un, I think they called it tessel or the trestle or whatever. When she would undo her hair so that she could get the full body of her hair out. So that she could adequately wipe up the oil that had covered the feet of Christ for his anointing. She gave up her glory for the glory of Christ. One pastor said it this way. The least of Jesus is worthy of the best of men. So what does this image show us? What type of memory cycle should be kick-started when we consider this image? What, what, should we, what should we think of from now on when we see this? Well, I would suggest this. That there should be no cost too great for when it comes to honoring and valuing Jesus. We count the cost all the time for everything. But when it comes to the honor and the glory of our King, there should be no 
cost too great. There should be no cost that would keep us from doing everything that we could do, from giving up anything that we would have or anything that we would cling to for His honor and for His glory. For Mary, her glory was a non-issue. For Mary, her alabaster bottle of spikenard perfume was a non-issue when it came to the expression of her devotion and her gratitude to Christ. You see, at this moment, the text quickly becomes a mirror for us. And we end up asking ourselves, is there a cost too great for me? Or would I give it all for the glory of Christ? You see, I'm not here to shame you or shame me. I'm not here to play the role of the Holy Spirit. But I think that's a question you and I have to ask ourselves. Are we willing to go the distance and count the cost? Because that's where it's headed. And you know it as well as I do. The value that you place on Christ becomes evident by the value you place on everything else. This image of Mary anointing Christ and wiping his feet with her hair should make us think of how our lives reflect or point others to Christ. For Mary, what she did showed those who were the, the, the observing audience that to her Christ mattered. Maybe the disciples didn't see it immediately, but that's what we see. That nothing else mattered, not this costly bottle of perfume not this costly alabaster bottle of spikenard not that not this rare herb that's that's harvested from the himalaya the himalayan mountains but her action shows that nothing is too great a cost that she considers all things to be less or to be rubbish compared to the surpassing value of honoring Christ, her Lord. So my question is this, how does your life point others to Jesus? How do your words, your choices, your actions, your finances, your thoughts, your hobbies, extracurricular activities, your relationships, your rules, your regulation, your principles... How did these things point others to Jesus? Because that's what we are created new to become. A reflection of Christ. Towards the end of Paul's life, he said, my life is being poured out as a drink offering. I want to say this as I close. Every drop that fills the cup of your life should somehow point others to the beauty of Christ. Because there is no cost too great compared to the glory of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, my prayer is simple today. My prayer is that you would be so gracious, despite myself, To use me, an image bearer, as one that would accurately and rightly reflect who you are. That my life would reflect the goodness of the gospel, the beauty of Jesus, and the hope 
therein. Thank you for your mercy in my life. Thank you for your grace that causes me to move forward. Thank you for not giving me what I deserve. Thank you for not giving me what I think I want, but only what you know I need. Help me to continue trusting. Increase my faith. In Christ's name, amen. All right.